This episode of Policing Matters is sponsored by Kenwood. We are committed to providing modern turnkey critical communication solutions for today and the future. Hello and welcome back and thank you for tuning in to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Well, it's been estimated by experts in the field that domestic and family violence cases are happening now and we may only be seeing the tip of the iceberg in terms of reporting with shelter in place and isolation. Our guest today has the unusual perspective of being in law enforcement and also a domestic violence survivor advocate in the Verde Valley of Northern Arizona. Welcome to the show, Nicole Florisi. Thank you for having me. That's great to have you. I mean, what what an interesting background you have. Um, you, you've lived in both worlds. You live in both worlds. Uh, you started your public safety career in 1999 as a communication expert. 2002, she became a certified peace officer for the state of Arizona. She's been a law enforcement trainer and instructor over the past 15 years with expertise in crisis intervention, de-escalation, crisis negotiation, child abduction response, domestic violence, human trafficking, and more. She's also a drug recognition expert and instructor, standardized field sobriety test instructor, and forensic phlebotomist. Nicole was the lead negotiator for the regional SWAT team for 12 years. Well, that's that's something. And and now you're cert, you're still a certified peace officer. You continue to work in that role at uh, an, let's just say a small police agency in the area with about a 400 population. So we know it's it's a small agency and and we love hearing from people representing the small agencies as well. It's a whole different uh, skill set needed there. Um, you've also worked with general mental health and serious mental illness populations, uh, with integrated community healthcare agencies. And, um, you're also an instructor at four science Institute. I think that's, that's really interesting. And, um, of course we're familiar with that as the organization dedicated to promoting the value of knowledge through empirical research in behavioral science and human dynamics. And uh, welcome again, Nicole. Well, thank you. I am very blessed to be here and I'm excited to talk about this topic uh, because I think there are some weaknesses, even though there's a lot of strengths. So I'm happy to be able to share some knowledge of maybe some directions where we could make more of a difference. Yeah, so, so in reading your, your bio and your, your in, you got a foot in both sides of the the fence if you will how do you make that balance are you a full-time cop for full-time counselor how's that work actually i'm full-time neither of those anymore almost um i left full-time law enforcement in march of last year and i took the executive director job at the verde valley sanctuary and that's where i became in the top role of an advocate for the populations of domestic violence sexual violence uh, human trafficking and whatnot. And 
the job came open, uh, actually with an unfortunate set of circumstances. Uh, our executive director here passed away unexpectedly. Mm. The job opened up and with everything I'd done in my career and with my background in mental health and counseling, I said, this is it. This is where I'm supposed to be. I can affect a lot of change in this position as much as truthfully, I love police work almost more than anything in the world from a job perspective. I was like, maybe there's nothing better, but let me try this. But the change I can affect in the position I'm in uh, is exponentially higher almost than I can do from a law enforcement perspective, even if I were lucky enough to get to a chief position. Mm -hmm. Well, what was the transition like? So going from law enforcement to an advocate, were you were you already in that gray area in between or was there a defining moment? How'd you make the jump? I found the jump was fairly simple for me because of just what you're talking about. I've always felt in my career that I've been an advocate in the beginning of my law enforcement, my law enforcement career. I didn't know exactly what that meant, really, for example, but I knew that I wanted to be better and I wanted to have the communication skills to be able to do my job better. Mm. And really, if you look for a defining moment, when I worked in communications, I, I also worked in a rural agency then for a neighboring department. And I worked by myself. I was the only dispatcher on. And I was scared out of my mind. I was new. I was young. That somebody was going to call me and want to complete suicide and do that on the phone with me. Mm. And I wasn't going to have you know, back then what I thought was the magic phrases, like the right thing to say. And, and I was scared that they were going to do that and I wouldn't be able to stop it. Now, I think we can all agree that it's a lot more complex than that, but what communication skills could I build on to be better and to be more professional? And that was really where it started. And even though it wasn't all about training back then, that was a lot of self-knowledge. You know, what could I read? What could I do? What experiences could I have? Who could I model to be a better communicator? In turn, making sure I became a very present listener. And that's really, I think, where the difference came in. Well, that's great advice. So how has your perspective changed from your early training, say, at the, at the police academy, you know, 15 plus years ago, to where you are, you are now, and with your experience and knowledge in helping survivors of trauma, if you were to go in to a police academy, would you revamp the training that we're giving now? Absolutely. I think of myself as a you. Uh, uh, sorry, I think of myself as a new, fresh officer. Even with no matter what state you're in, X amount of hours, we don't dedicate a lot of skills to however you want to break it down. There's not a lot of skills attended to for communication specifically. We don't attend, at least back then, and I think we're getting better. We don't attend to mental health and mental illness. We don't focus on some of those skill sets. And then beyond that, we also don't focus on why do we need a hundred different skill sets or how do we just focus on what is the best communication skill for our situation? And I think that is really dialing it in, providing it across the board. And when I was new, that didn't happen. I think academies are making headway. And obviously some of the legislation that comes down open to de-escalation. We need more mental health, more mental illness recognition. But I think we can both agree at the end of the day, what we need is to recognize the behaviors that people present. Hmm. Not necessarily, we're not supposed to treat somebody as a mental illness or a diagnosis. That, that's not who they are. They're an individual. 
and, and at most knowing what their mental illness is, is informative, right? So the skill set needs to be in behavior recognition, thought recognition. What are they presenting to you at the scene? I still think there's a bit of a disconnect there that we can do better on. But 15, 20 years ago, we weren't really touching on anything. We're, you know, what was their focus? We really need to get CPR and hope you guys can shoot and drive. You yeah. know, yeah. you recognize the, the laws of your state. Well, you carry the book with you. Pretty sure you can figure that out. What's going to keep you alive? What's going to help you communicate? You have to look at the communication, the decision-making, everything is one holistic thing. So you can move forward to be better at what you are. Yeah. So you're, you're saying we need to invest more in, in providing the skill level for officers to, to triage, if you will, and, and do some assessments from the very first contact. But Even some, before the first contact, Jim. Before? To, before. Start that assessment from the first call from dispatch. I Start love it. Okay. So, so we get the call, you and I are partners and we're in a radio car and uh, domestic violence. Um, we've been there before. What are we talking about? You and I so think about your threat assessment. You, you know, you're going to a domestic violence call. Um, you know, there always comes an argument, like we need to treat certain situations differently. And I, I agree with that holistically, but where's our safety concerns with a lot of these situations? They're very fluid. They're very volatile on the way to a call. What history do we have? How are we going to approach it? I mean, you need to dial all that in prior. And I think our new guys and ladies out of the academy, they're a little more hypersensitive to that, right? Because mm -hmm. they're new. I think we become inadvertently complacent over time, mm -hmm. even though we, we, we can all recognize, hey, DVs, uh, they can be very challenging. They're very volatile. And we know there's some safety components that we need to attend to. But I almost think that it becomes repetitious. So how do we you know, basically check ourselves on that. So we know we're going to a DV call. We have to figure out where we're going to park. What history do we have? The history is informative for us. Do we have volatile behavior there? Do we know potentially if there is substance use involved or not? If there's a mental illness involved, it's good to know. I mean, let, let's admit it's good to know potentially their behavior is associated with certain things, but all we can respond to is what we get there, what somebody presents, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think a risk assessment needs to start so far uh, before you arrive, because your threat assessment and your risk assessment continues all through that call. And especially if we're going to particularize a domestic violence call or a family violence call right now, mm -hmm. safety is of the utmost importance. I, I think also what happens is there's an, whether it's unwritten and, and tr truthfully unreasonable expectation, we're supposed to act differently all the time. You know, we're supposed to treat someone with a mental illness different or treat a DV victim different, you know, all in this initial response when there's such a large safety component that that's what needs to be attended to first. We can't work in any kind of de-escalation, trauma-informed framework, anything like that until the situation's safe for everybody. You know, you can't, you can't worry about a trauma-informed interview if you're worried about somebody who's going to, you know, be throwing bullets downrange at you. So, you know, until the situation is safe and as stable as it can be, regardless of what it is, there's no relationship building. There's no connection. There, there's none of that happening. Right, right. Um, so, you know, from a DV perspective, it's safety first, that risk assessment right into you have to still maintain your safety when you're going there. Sure. And then and then with everybody talking about de-escalation, even when we get there, uh, we may not be making an approach close enough to, to build that, that rapport or, or do an assessment anyway. Maybe not initially, um, hopefully we can build. I mean, there's a lot of different ways we can build relationships with somebody, but again, you know, the one component that gets overlooked uh, and that 
you know, it's really attended to um, in, in the force science de-escalation is what you need to build that relationship, but also what happens if the ability is not there. You know, it's an, again, one of those unreasonable expectations that everybody can be de-escalated. That's mm-hmm. not true. You have to be able to have some kind of relationship, some connection, some contact with the person. And the person has to, you know, if they're not so contaminated in the thought process, you know, there also is the choice in some of that, whether they de-escalate. People do have choices in this. You know, once they're not as um, irrational, for lack of a better word, they can choose to comply with us. But that relationship that's built in the interim, if you have that connection, if you're able to establish that and build that rapport and build that trust, that's where those things can occur. And it's simultaneously, when you think about it, whether it's de-escalation, whether it's just you're trying to have a conversation, whether it's building that rapport for the interview, I mean, if you look at that, that relationship has to happen. There has to be some kind of trust bridge there. Or why is somebody going to talk to you? Why are they going to open up? Why, why are they going to choose you to, to share what's going on, you know, in their head and their life? If it's a traumatic event, why you? Mm-hmm. So we want to be part of the solution to that problem um, of wanting to show somebody we're present, that we are open to what they're saying. We aren't judgmental about their situation. And as far as we've come, it's, it's our phrasing sometimes that destroys that inadvertently. I, I don't think there's any deliberateness a lot of time on any officer's part to um, basically have that relationship take a sideways turn. But yeah. sometimes it is as simple as that. It is our phrasing or it's interrupting the victim. Mm-hmm. You know, when we talk about that trauma-informed framework, how do we normally interview? It's very direct. We're always giving directives. Explain this. Tell me, you know. Uh, that's not very trauma informed. Right. So, and, and what is the expectation? And this has to be knowledge for law enforcement or any first responder, really. Where's the expectation that when somebody's traumatized or in some kind of crisis, crisis like behavior, they're going to remember anything chronologically? It's not how the brain works. Mm-hmm. You know, right. memories consolidate that way. And so you're, you're so unlikely, so unlikely to get this chronological version of events. That, that's not how it happens and sure. any kind of, you know, basically irrational mindset, trauma, you know, trauma brain, stuff like that. Right. And if officers don't know that, they're not going to realize, you know, what they're dealing with. And that's just a lack of information and foundational training. So if we can move that forward, that's what makes all the difference. Yeah, I think you bring up several good issues there. And one is that sometimes we, we use the exact same interview technique on the offender suspect as with the victim. And I hear what you're saying absolutely about the victim informed and trauma informed uh, interviewing uh, technique with a, with a survivor of, of a traumatic uh, injury or assault. So that, that makes good sense. But say we get uh, the offender secure, another unit comes, takes them away. Um, I wanna talk a little bit about what's, what's our strategy for the interview. But first, I want to acknowledge our sponsor, and we'll be right back. At Kenwood, we make sure first responders have mission-critical radio systems that work, no matter what. When the mission is critical, no one has time for complexities or static or system failures. It has to work perfectly in the worst conditions. That's why Kenwood focuses on innovating, developing, and implementing the highest quality secure communication solutions to organizations whose mission is to protect and save lives. 
We ensure you will always have the lifeline you need when you need it. We make safe simple. Visit us online at www.efjohnson.com. And I'm back and I'm speaking with Nicole Florisi and Nicole's got uh, a hand in law enforcement in Northern Arizona and she's the director of a sanctuary for survivors of uh, domestic and and um, violence uh, on uh, women primar- primarily are your clients. Am I right? That's correct. Our, our primary clients are women. However, we serve men, women, uh, transgender, LGBTQ, you name it. Like we, you know, old school, if you want to call it old school shelters, it was women only. You couldn't even bring your children if they right. were certain or if they were male over a certain age. Uh, obviously we could all agree that's not really trauma informed, right? Not actually the safety of any situation. It's not like that now. And you serve your, the family basically. So if it's a mother with children or father with children or whatever population that is, and we're also a pet friendly shelter uh, (laughs) due to the number of people who will not leave their abuser because they're afraid he's going to kill their pets. So, well, we, we have a pet facility and, you know, we want to remove as many barriers and hurdles as possible when somebody's ready to leave. And we want to be part of that. So that, that's why we try and attend to, to that. Awesome. Well, just before the break, we, you, you were talking about some really interesting things. And of course I wanted to say, what do we do when we get there? And you're like, well, wait, wait, we're not there yet. Let's do some work beforehand. And you mentioned dispatching and I think there's two schools of thoughts on dispatching or emergency communications. And tell me about this because you've got experience there too. And in in one school of thought, there's, um, like you said, we, we don't get enough information or we assume everything is pro forma. We're just going to respond the way we always do to these things. And it's not a design complacency, but there is some sort of well, we're going to the routine DV call. I think the other school of thought or the other criticism is that the officer is responding, maybe getting too pumped up with information from dispatch or emergency communication in that, uh, okay, we want you to know he's had violence before, uh, he's using a weapon, He, uh, the neighbor says he's, she hears these blood curdling screams and, and, and so, the officers responding are driving faster and they're getting pumped up and they're responding in this hyper vigilant stage. So you talked about the low end response and I'm talking about a high end response. Where, where should the dispatch or communications people be brought into the loop? So I think your phrasing is actually really interesting because you're talking about the one thing the officer has control over mm-hmm. and that's their own response to the situation. So if they're not able to manage their own emotions in this, they're getting, like you said, I mean, this, this is great, pumped up and they're driving faster. They're not controlling or doing anything. Yes, we do have an automatic response in, in our body, but it, you know, as officers, as, as professionals, we have an obligation to be able to manage that. So if an officer is not able to control that emotional response relative to, let, let's be honest, let's go for the sake of argument, what dispatch is saying is accurate and true, because we also are at the mercy of perceptions of people calling in. Mm -hmm. Uh, If 
all what you said is true. Like say there is blood curdling screams and the person does have a weapon and all that is factual. That's absolutely important for an officer to know. You are going to change your risk assessment of the situation based on the information from dispatch. Secondary to that is you have to be in control of your emotional response. That is your obligation as an officer for your own safety and for the safety of the people that you, you have in your community. So I would say we need to reframe that into if the officer is the one that is getting pumped up for lack of a better word, based on verbal information, mm-hmm. it's the officer's responsibility to learn how to control that because we shouldn't be per se, I'm just going to use the, the situation like driving faster because, oh my God, it's elevated to the fact and it's a response that's not controlled. Does that make sense? Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I, I would encourage people to attend to that with themselves. We all have to recognize, hey, what jacks us up? What kind of call do we go to that really gets us going? Because we all, we all have that, you know? So we have to be able to control that, that stress arousal, that adrenaline that's coursing through us. So I, I think it's a separate issue, but I think you make a better risk assessment and a well-informed decision with information because going in blind, uh, that can be really challenging. For sure. And I think we could argue all day on officer preference on this. Honestly, you could probably do a poll and I don't know where it would end up on. Do you want more information? Do you want less information? You know, what, what is it that drives you, um, you know, in, in your own response, but the more information or intelligence, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. um, the more intelligence that you have to make an appropriate assessment of the situation is really what is critical. Sure. No. Hey, you're preaching to the choir. You've gotten emails from me and my tagline is arm yourself dot, dot, dot with knowledge. Right. And I firmly believe that I was, I'm trying to go from a perspective that was 180 degrees different than yours of, of going in at this, oh, we're going to another DV, it's whatever, to the heightened ones that we see on some of the shoot, don't shoot scenarios. You know, they're, they're blaring the sirens behind you and they, there's all this, you know, uh, input coming at you, sight and sound and information. And yeah, I mean, it'd be great if we could all control our emotions, but uh, I doubt, you know, I challenge anyone to say that they're not going to drive a little bit faster when they hear the situation is heightened, right? That now, um, you know, they, they see, you know, what may look like flashes from a gun gunfire or something inside, Any, anything that might escalate. No, so, I'm, I'm with you on that from a controlled perspective. I think we're always going to respond to the threat in what and it'll probably individualize per officer. We're going to be responding to that situation into that threat with the speed that I really do think this is individual of that officer's perception of what's going on. Right. right? But it's the behaviors that are uncontrolled that are where we don't make good decisions. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's be honest. We deal with people uh, on a basis where they're emotionally driven. They're basically, you know, in crisis behavior, crisis-like behavior, and they're what we could all consider perhaps not in the rational brain. Because that is physiologically driven, officers are no, officers are no different in the fact that that response can happen to them. The point difference that I think we're, maybe it's semantics really, we're arguing on a choice to do a behavior because you're like, this is my threat assessment and I feel I need to get there faster versus 
I'm just hitting the gas because I'm all jacked up and I don't know what's going on. My pulse is through the roof and my, you know, this, and I'm totally uncontrolled in that hormonal stress arousal, totally different. Um, and that's where I feel the obligation comes just like we train firearms and driving and all of this stuff. Part of our response needs to be, how do we control our own response to where we're going? Sure. And so that's what I would like that encouragement. And if that makes a little bit, a little bit of difference and more sense on that. Gotcha. Gotcha. I think we're, we're talking about the same thing, maybe different terms. Okay. Switching gears a little bit. So you, you alluded to it a little bit ago when we talked about um, more training, maybe more legislation and, you know, um, in the mid nineties, we looked at how we were responding to domestic violence and the Sherman study, the Minneapolis study told us we were doing it wrong. So we shifted gears. Then um, we've got um, family violence centers, family violence uh, district attorneys. We've got alternative courts and things like that. So uh, we're, we're, we're moving all over the place. We we're checking different boxes in our reports. What kind of legislation would help an officer now? I mean, recently, I said recently, over the last 10 years, uh, legislation mandated that we include children in the household at trauma or domestic violence scenes. And I think that's great for follow-up and advocates to come in and assess the children involved, children who witness violence, right? There's, there's impact. So what, what other kind of legislation might help the situation? And, and I think one of the successes would be in the officer not having to return to those places. Well, ideally, I think that is actually a great point because let's look at, now this is, this is a system problem. So interesting, this is not a police problem per se, mm -hmm. but we are that initial first responder. So if we are repeatedly going to the same house over and over and over, where's the interruption in what's going on. What have we, and I get we're not, well, for the sake of argument, most of us as a side job, we're not therapists or psychologists or whatnot, right? Right. But what are we in that first responder role not being able to provide for that family for an interruption in the behaviors going on? What can we do? Now, I'm not saying that's a, a legislative issue per se, because we can talk about what kind of training could we do. But if we keep going to the same address over and over and over for the same behaviors, nothing's changing in that household. And there is the possibility that something is going to escalate in that household, mm -hmm. right? So part of it is it has to be a choice on the individual in the household of what kind of services am I going to get? Am I going to engage in services? That, that's, a, that's a choice for both what we would consider uh, the survivor in the household and the abuser or offender. I mean, th there has to be an interruption in the behavior and an introduction of skill sets and something else to, to help them manage whatever is going on we can be part of that process of referral for, for services, for lack mm. of a better thing, because we're not the ones that are going to be providing those kind of services. I think when we introduced victim advocates from, from that perspective, at least for the survivor, for the most part, it is helping build a plan, is helping build a skill set. But for those survivors who choose not to leave their abuser, Where's the interruption in skill set there? Mandated 26 weeks of anger management. Has that really fixed our problem? Hmm. You know, what are, if you, you know, I can't give you true statistics on this, but anecdotally, I can tell you that for the most part, most abusers have been victims. Mm -hmm. 
there's no excuse. I'm not excusing the behavior, but I just want you to understand there, there's a lot of layers that goes to, you know, what's going on in a brain that has been changed by violence. Yeah. Um, but what you said earlier counts here as well. And we can only control what we can control. Right. So I think the reality is, at least in, in a city like San Francisco, where I worked, we were going to the same place over and over and over again. And yeah, social services got involved or counseling or victim witnesses got involved, but but the reality was, um, you know, oftentimes the offender went back. And, and nowadays when we're releasing, you know, prisoners or, or the doors revolving to where people don't end up in jail anymore, um, that they're often, they, they have no place else to go, but back to where they came from. And then, you know, the fight is on again. So maybe the legislation goes beyond policing and goes more to public health or mental health or district attorneys. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's similar to the drug situation we're in now where San Francisco, we just had 700 overdose deaths. And if, if they, the legislator thinks that they're going to solve the overdose problem by giving police Narcan or naloxone, yeah, that's why we have 700 overdose deaths. So the, the problem of repeat chronic offenders going back to the place and as having to go back, I, I, don't, I don't have the answer. Maybe you're hearing something in, in, this, in those advocate circles. No, I mean, we're, we're dealing with a, a varied population in, in the role of an advocate because we are dealing with survivors who have made the choice to leave their abuser. We are also dealing with survivors who are unsure if that's what they truly wanna do. They might be engaging with services only by phone, perhaps mm. they're still in the household, uh, or maybe they have come into our shelter, uh, but really haven't decided uh, which way they're gonna go. Right. And so that, I think that's a, and I know as a police officer before I probably had enough understanding of how things work, I know it was very frustrating for me and I didn't understand because like a quick class on the you know honeymoon cycle of violence doesn't really attend to why do people do what they do? Mm. And it is like, you know, I, I do remember thinking before I had a different knowledge base, why do people always go back? Like, what is going on? Like, like what's going to be the final line? Is it going to be a broken bone this time instead of a slap? Like, like, what is it for that person? And I didn't really, you know, I would definitely say early in my career, I didn't have an understanding of the framework of, you know, how trauma impacts the brain and violence and stuff like that. Now we have an understanding, but I could see from a first responder and officer perspective, let's be honest, it's beyond DV, but when you do have those repetitive calls, it is the same fight. It is the same thing where you're going to the same home all the time because the subject is suicidal for whatever that reason may be. Um, and, and it's another repeat behavior. And the frustration level occurs because it's like, here we go again, yeah. here we go again. You feel like you're on the hamster wheel. And that's the challenge of how do we help the hamster wheel change? How do we get the hamster off the wheel? And, and that is a multi-layered and multifaceted event that police are part of and EMS is part of and our behavioral health or integrated health is part of and social services and the courts. I mean, the, you know, like you talk about, it's just kind of layer after layer of how do we provide successful intervention or more successful than not or tools to help people, you know, in the in the role I'm in now, it is very interesting because we do get a lot of people who stay with their abusers. So mm -hmm. what we spend a lot of time doing is safety planning. 
you know, how do you remain safe in your situation? That's a little different role than law enforcement has, you know, the luxury in. They're not really in a point to safety plan, right? That, That almost goes, if you look at it, you know, it's not really parallel to their mission. It's kind of a misalignment if they're safety planning, because that wouldn't necessarily be their role. Sure. You know, but from an advocate perspective, what can we do to keep you safe in your house? How do we keep your children safe? What does it mean to you? Like, if you are going to leave, you know, what do you need to leave? Do you have your own bank account? You know, a lot of times when we're talking more the primary aggression of domestic violence, not this back and forth situational couple violence, you know, the person may not have a driver's license or a social security card or their birth certificate or access to money. You right. know, behavior diminishes their ability to do something. So in this role, we spend a lot of time. How do we keep you safe where you are? When you're ready to leave, what can we do to help you? And how do we make that transition as safe as possible for you? And, you know, some people, there's like a defining moment, fundamental moment, whatever it is, and they go. Some people will call. It's like they give us a check in every two weeks. They could be two years into a phone call. And finally, something happens two years later, and they're like, I'm done. I'm ready to go. Hmm. So never leave. And, and I think from a law enforcement, from a police perspective, when you think about that, how frustrating it can be to be like, I feel like I've done my role in law enforcement to help you. I've tried, you know, I put, you know, cause that's how we sometimes gauge success. I put the person in jail. I arrested them. I've, I've tried to give you time to get out of the relationship, but let's be honest. It's not that simplistic. Sure. You can't believe. I mean, that, that's what I think people don't understand, especially when there is some kind of control of a person. Mm-hmm. What if there is no money? What if there's nothing? They, they have no income. They've never worked. Mm-hmm. They have two children to take care of. They have no even baseline skill to get a minimum wage job. They don't have a vehicle, you know? So when you start to think outside the scope of I've arrested a person who has hurt you, things start to change because even for those of us who have halfway decent jobs, you know, I tell people, think for just a second, your own income, like you have a job. Think about if you had to abandon everything that you've ever had in your whole life, Right. take a couple children and start over somewhere where nobody knows you and you're afraid I mean, think about that too. People who are constantly exposed to trauma are, are hypervigilant. They do have those, you know, trauma behaviors, right? And you're supposed to make well-informed critical decisions, be able to take care of a family. You know, for those of us with none of that outside influence going on, if we just had to pick up and go on our income, that's still rough. Sure. We have a job skill set. That's not the same. I mean, this is poverty level stuff, you know, mm-hmm. and, and but on the opposite hand, there's people who are very successful who are in those same kind of controlling relationships, you know? And so I think that's something that I, was, I would always want law enforcement to think about this. DV impacts everyone, every population. They need to really understand that everybody's not ready to leave. Regardless of what the offender's behavior is, like the, the victim slash survivor, they may not be ready for the end of that relationship. And our role from an advocate is to support them no matter what their choice is. That is sometimes a hard pill to swallow for law enforcement. Yeah. Wow. Well, you sure show the difference between the the two roles that you have. It must be really difficult for you to, to transition from one to the other. Put, take one hat off and put the other on. But clearly you have a good understanding of the role of the victim and all the all of the external and internal impacts on, on the victim. So I want to wrap up, but I want to ask you about the the issue of interviewing uh, the survivor. And in a small area, small town area or rural areas that that you're in, I don't know that you you've got the resources to do it. But uh, 
We shifted to a multidisciplinary interview center approach with child victims, specifically sexual assault victims, where the trauma was reduced by not subjecting them to multiple interviews with the same questions over and over by the district attorney uh, deputy or the police officer or then the detective and the pediatric nurse or doctor and social services. And, and so, you know, you, ha- you may have a child who has this trauma who's reliving it four, five, six times because of the interviews. Are you doing that with, with domestic violence or women involved in, in traumatic injury cases? I would say that there's weaknesses in that still, because what you're talking about, it, I think is more in place. If you look at the multidisciplinary teams, that's where we decided we need to make a change, right? With children, because obviously the impact of trauma on the child brain, we all know how challenging that can be and how that translates into adulthood if there's no interruption in that cycle, right? right. But I think when people magically turn 18, for whatever this reason is, I don't know why that trauma framework is supposed to go away. So I would say for the most part, I don't think you see, and I hope people listening to this, actually, if there's some multidisciplinary units for adults, I'd be interested in seeing how that was implemented. I think at least where I'm at, that's a choice to try and reduce the number of times you interview somebody at this point from an adult perspective. We Mm. do work in that same facet for children, you know, we work with all the organizations, we try and reduce the number of times of the interviews, but, but let's be honest, it's no different on an adult. Right. It's different because the child, the child brain is still forming. So it's going to impact it different, but trauma is trauma. And I don't think we give adults the same care. We don't see that you'll get the officer at the scene, then you'll get the detective. And then perhaps if it is a sexual assault and they're agreeable to a SANE exam, they do that. And the nurse asks a couple of questions. We should be implementing that same framework because adults deserve, for lack of a better word, that same respect. Trauma is trauma. So we need to treat people appropriately within that. And I I think there's a disconnect just because there's a, what we would consider a child victim, but adults deserve the same respect. And I, I guess I don't have an answer for why that's not implemented, but I think it would be absolutely fantastic and appropriate if we looked at it different that, you know, there's a lot of you can get training in, you know, trauma, trauma informed framework interviewing and whatnot. You know, what, what was the big thing when people needed to be, uh, to do child sex crimes was let's focus on forensic interviewing. But at the end of the day, let's put a whole bunch of interviews together. Is forensic interviewing, sorry, is forensic interviewing really trauma informed interviewing? Let's talk, you know, I mean, let's have that conversation Mm -hmm. or if it's not, because sometimes this might be, not as holistic as it should be, but sometimes I look at forensic interviewing, even though it's great at what it does, it's basically designed so you don't lead somebody down the wrong path, right? You don't want to ask leading questions. Sure. Is not asking a leading question trauma-informed? Is it? I mean, I think we can debate some of that stuff, but the focus was what? Children. So we don't lead a child down the wrong path. So we're not part of the problem during the investigation. Beyond that, how can we ask questions that aren't hurtful and re-traumatizing and we're part of the solution, not part of the problem. And this is not because law enforcement officers or anybody who maybe doesn't have a background are doing this deliberately. This is not deliberate Mm -hmm. on anybody's part, but you know this as well as I do. What do you get? Why, why, why? There's still people, what were you wearing? Why did you do that? You know, how come you didn't fight back? 
the fact that those questions still even get asked is appalling to me, you know, and, and we can be better and there's stuff out there. So when I look, if we had to legislate something, which I will tell you internally makes me cringe a smidge because once you legislate it, all of a sudden, if people wanted it, they dig their heels and they say, well, I'm not going to do that. I've been voluntold, right? Sure. I don't want to do that now. But if I had to legislate, you know, Nicole's perfect world, we need to look at first responders need an understanding of trauma on the brain so they can effectively get to their end goal. If our goal is to get a successful interview and to be able to give that survivor justice and to be able to move into that, we have to use the right interviewing technique per the individual. Hmm. And we need to work in the framework. And if nobody understands how trauma impacts the brain, that they're not going to get this perfect story, that there's going to be gaps in memory. And that doesn't mean somebody's lying. You know, that's what I would want. Everybody trained in trauma informed interviewing, and then everybody trained in cognitive interviewing and everybody trained actually still in forensic interviewing. Like let's give the people the tools they need to do their job. Yeah, We're not going to get that at the academy level. Like no way. Academies would be like two years long. Right. But I think it's our responsibility as leaders in the field to give everybody the tools they need. Yeah. And that's where I would really start. Yeah, no, you, you, you make a great point there. And, and I think now, I mean, what time better than now when we're doing half of our stuff on zoom or, or virtual anyway, um, you would, I don't know what level you would take it. Maybe advocates to the Senate or Congress or your governor to say, don't make it an unfunded mandate, but give us give us some funding to bring teams together in jurisdictions, right? And and in your area, maybe you bring counties together to do these these multidisciplinary interview uh, uh, examinations and interviews, just to you know take some of the sting out of it. Make sure you're all talking the same language that you know in with children when we did our child abuse uh, interviews. We had a meeting, we got everybody's questions uh, asked. We had an earpiece in the ear of the live interviewer in the room with the child. If somebody thought of a follow-up question, they could feed them and then the interviewer had the choice to either ask it or not. So, I mean, it makes sense. And it, it might take a little bit more uh, leg work uh, and energy in figuring it out before you do the assessment. But then you just do that one interview. One person does the interview representing everybody else. I don't see the harm there. So I, I'm with you. I think if anything's got to be legislated, do that and fund it. Uh, and then make. I guess you make it optional so that the people you're talking about who would be resistant to it, then it's their choice. Yeah. And I mean, you really just bring up a lot of those good points because when we talk about the multidisciplinary team, when you're just talking about that, children absolutely deserve that, but adults do too. Sure. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Nicole Florisi from uh, Northern Arizona. We're going to be a little ambiguous. We're going to say Verde Valley, Northern Arizona. We're not going to pinpoint you any closer than that, but you're doing some really great work for survivors of domestic violence and trauma. Um, you're, you're bringing the word to public safety, law enforcement officers. I, I applaud your efforts and I, and I hope you stay safe when you, you put the boots on and, and you do your time at, at your local law enforcement agency as well. Well, thank you and thank you for this opportunity. 
you know, the only way we can change is information and education and conversation to make a difference. So thank you for the opportunity to really get some information out there and hopefully impact someone where even if management and leadership isn't part of the solution, they realize they can make that choice as an individual and still move forward and be better and more professional at what they're doing. You bet. Any articles or website you want to mention to have our listeners uh, take a look for, for more follow-up info to this? Honestly, Jim, could I tell you, I could probably email you a list, but off the top of my head, um, I could give them a whole lot of stuff if they want to do research. But um, I, I think the best thing to start to do is to really build those collaborative community relationships with the people that are working in and modeling how things should be um, and increasing that scope of, you know, even outside your own knowledge to be able to work through that. And those relationships are really important. But if you're open to it, I'm happy to email you a list of like areas you can look at trauma-informed framework and how to understand trauma. And even like webinar classes you can take um, that are not overly expensive uh, through certain learning platforms that will give you an opportunity just, hey, how does the neurobiology of trauma or, you know, the impact of trauma in a person's behavior, you know, there's even like two and three hour classes uh, that you can take to really just have that foundational knowledge for yourself uh, and then apply that, you know, as you go through for people who have had that exposure to violence. Great. We'll list those in the show notes. Awesome. All right. Take good care. And to our listeners out there, are you benefiting from advocates? Are you talking to your advocates in your areas? Are you using multidisciplinary interviewing? Let us know. Tell us what you think. Uh, send us an email at policingmatters at police1.com. That's policingmatters at police1.com. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. Take good care. <laughs>